the news is full of stories about people trying to limit other people's expression. A battle over a flagpole, faith in the First Amendment, and free speech. Americans are divided over what, when, where, and how things can or can't be said. From the ACLU, this is Ask an Expert, a special miniseries where our constitutional experts answer your civil rights and civil liberties questions. The importance of free speech in our democracy. The culture of free speech is under attack. It's crucial for students to be able to express themselves because schools are nurseries of democracy, and democracy only works if we protect a free exchange of ideas. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. For this edition, we are diving deep into free speech and talking to expert Ben Weisner, the director of the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. So far, we've found our free speech footing and also logged into how speech plays out online. This week, Ben is back to educate us on the speech that happens on school grounds, education in book bans, student speech, and more. We have been sourcing free speech questions from you over email, social media, and our phone line. We've sorted through the questions and we're ready to dive right in. So Ben, thank you so much for coming back. (laughs) I'm still alive. <laughs> that is so bleak, but um, we're gonna we're just gonna roll with it. We're just gonna roll yeah. with it. So uh, I want to start with uh, playing this first question about the legality and constitutionality of banning books. And this comes from MJ Wu. My name is MJ. I'm currently in Baltimore, Maryland, and. I would love it if someone could walk me through the legality and constitutionality of banning books at school. Like, how does it work? So this is unfortunately in the news again. It seems like it never stays out of the news for too long. And there's always some school district or some region where these bans are popping up again. Unfortunately, now it seems to be even more of a national trend. So so let's start with some basics. What do we mean when we refer to banning books in a school? And I think there's been some confusion here, and I think there's been some conflation. And some things are being called bans that I think are not necessarily bans. So if a school says, this book will no longer be in our library, and no student can look for it, find it, or read it, that's a ban. If a school says, we are no longer going to have this book be required as part of our curriculum, That really isn't a ban, and the law is different in those two situations. We may profoundly disagree with the school's decision to remove the book from the curriculum. Earlier this year, there was a controversy about the Holocaust memoir, Mouse, being removed from a school curriculum, and I think it was sort of mislabeled a ban by a lot of people who were rightly upset that it was removed from the curriculum, but that's very different than saying, we're going to take this book out of our library so no one can even find it in their own exploration. So can schools just decide for any reason to take books out of school libraries? The courts have said pretty emphatically, no, they can't do that. Um, That the First Amendment applies very strongly here, that uh, it's a very important value in our democracy for young people to be able to engage in intellectual, ideological exploration. And if school districts are removing books based on their viewpoints, very often the courts are going to step in and say, that was unconstitutional. You cannot do that. It doesn't mean that schools really have no control over setting rules for things that can be in school libraries. Uh, I'm sure there are not 
any school libraries in America that where you could find, say, hardcore pornography. But where it's pretty clear that the schools are targeting content based on its viewpoint. So a lot of the bans that we're seeing recently involve books about race, books about gender, books that include concepts that really are challenging to some traditional families. Um, there, the schools are going to be on much weaker grounds. And, I, you know, I say this, we should have some compassion and not just derision for families that are nervous about what books are in school libraries. Books are powerful. Uh, I'm sure almost everybody listening to this was changed by books. And maybe for some of us, that meant moving away from our families or our community's values. Books really are challenging, but that's also why they vitally need protection so that people can essentially decide what kind of citizens they want to become in this democracy. But in short, schools have a lot more control and states have a lot more control um, about what is taught in classes than they do about what's on library bookshelves. I think that's a really important distinction between books that are just overall banned and removed and books that are just removed from a curriculum. I don't think that we always see that distinction when we're reading, oh, this this is the banned book list in Texas or in Florida. And I think that that distinction is actually really important because plenty of those books are not taught. It is an important distinction, but I should be clear there are plenty of books being banned outright, even by the narrower definition um, in Texas and Florida and elsewhere. The ACLU um, now has a lawsuit in Missouri over books that have been removed from a school library. And there, the policy is that any parent who objects to a book complains about it, and then the book is immediately removed pending review, which essentially gives anyone a veto power over what everyone else can read. Right, yes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So it's not that I object to this book, and then it gets reviewed. I object it gets removed, and then it gets reviewed. Um, and, and that, you know, we think is obviously unconstitutional. What do you make of the rise? Why now? Well, I think when you see movements for social change occupy center stage, and we saw this with the protests following the murder of George Floyd, we're seeing this with, you know, the rise of the transgender rights movement, we can expect certain kinds of backlash, that people, communities that feel threatened by the change that's being advocated can sometimes dig in. In some ways, it can be a sign of the strength of social movements that they do bring about these kinds of backlash and attempts at retrenchment. And I think there are other theories as well. I think, you know, during the pandemic, when so many kids were doing school from home, more parents were looking over their shoulder. And so there were more opportunities, I think, for parents to, you know, look maybe more closely than they need to um, at specifics of school curricula and books and things like that when a whole family is sitting in the same room. Um, and that may be another sort of short term cause of why we're seeing these controversies erupt. I think it does make a lot of sense that parents would have a greater window into students, into their kids' education after the pandemic. And it does make sense as a backlash to these movements. To that end, I want to play you another question. This is from Elizabeth. Hi, my name is Elizabeth from Florida. What free speech rights do teachers have in schools, specifically publicly funded ones? What are the limits of the government using its voice through schools by limiting or compelling teacher speech? 
Thank you so much. So this is a really interesting and important question. And here there really is a difference between teachers in elementary and secondary schools and university professors. University professors have more individual right, academic freedom rights, even First Amendment rights to express their opinions. And and those rights don't extend as far to teachers in public schools who are really acting in loco parentis, who really are responsible for supervising children. And so we can place restrictions on what teachers can say. So a teacher might have a First Amendment right to use a racist slur out in the world. But we can say to a teacher, you can't do that in a classroom where it's going to strongly interfere with a student's ability to learn and to be comfortable there, right? So that would be an unconstitutional restriction of the teacher's rights in society, uh, but a very appropriate restriction on the teacher's speech rights in the classroom. And so you've seen this come up where teachers have insisted on misgendering students because they say they have a religious belief uh, about what gender a student is. And, and, and that that's not a particularly persuasive argument to us. And it's easy to say that a student's right to be free from discrimination can override a teacher's putative religious right to call a student by the gender of the teacher's choice. But that's not the whole story. And there's a gray area. We don't think that academic freedom principles are entirely absent from, say, high schools. And some of the laws that we're now seeing pop up around the country and that we may address in another question that aim to restrict teaching of, you know, so-called divisive racial concepts, critical race theory, although I don't think the legislatures know what that means, um, certain ideas about gender, um, may actually be so untethered from a reasonable pedagogical rationale that they do abridge both students' First Amendment rights and, to some extent, teachers' First Amendment rights because they're facing punishment in situations where they're not even clear on what the rules can be. But as a general matter, the state has a lot more control over the speech of teachers in classrooms than it does over the rest of us. Thank you for that, Ben. I think it's really helpful. And I'm guessing we probably have a lot of teachers that will be listening to this episode. I want to play a question from a teacher. This is Veronica. Hi, my name is Veronica, and I'm from New Jersey. I am a teacher, and my question is, how can I encourage my students to participate in debates and exercise their free speech while maintaining a safe environment for all students, especially my BIPOC and LGBTQI students? Thanks. You know, I would love to have a discussion with this teacher about this. The teacher probably has a lot more experience in how to create an environment that is simultaneously challenging, you know, stimulating, but also protective for students. And I think this is going to vary uh, a lot by age, that we may be comfortable saying that 16, 17, 18-year-old high school students are ready to be challenged in ways that we would not feel about 9-year-olds, 10-year-olds, or 11-year-olds, both in terms of the subject matter that's being taught, but also the diversity of viewpoints um, that students are being subjected to. But we You know, in my experience, we err when we speak down to students rather than speaking up to them. And that the times that I've been able to visit, you know, my brother's eighth grade classroom, he's a longtime public school teacher in New York City. I always speak to those eighth graders in the same way that I would speak to 11th or 12th graders in terms of the complexity of the subject matter. I know that some of them will 
you know, immediately be able to grasp everything that we're talking about, and the others will reach towards it, you know, rather than than boring some of the students by by teaching down to that level. But but look, this is a challenge in schools. It's a challenge on college campuses where there are so many incidents that take place where students are, you know, offended, hurt, injured by the views expressed by speakers. Um, one of the things that we try to do at the ACLU is engage students about how speech and protest can be powerful for them, both personally and for the causes that they support, and how they can actually use their voices and their speech as a counter to some of the people and concepts that might be strongly offending them. But I don't have, you know, the perfect answer to this question. I'm not sure there is one. I agree with that. It's definitely a judgment call question. And to your whole point, I think at the beginning, you said this person's a teacher, they probably have a lot more experience than than you would. I do want to get into what we consider education bans. And this is the practice of controlling what kinds of curriculum will be taught in schools around certain subject matter. We've seen this ignite across the country. Parents get involved arguing against teaching things about racism or accurate history of the U.S., teaching comprehensive sexual education, all of these different kinds of topics. And I do want to dig in specifically to education bans. What can you tell us, Ben, about education bans and how they sit in the law? Well, this is also not a very straightforward legal question. And if we were to return to this in six or 12 months, we might have a few more answers because we have filed some lawsuits around the country in response to some of the bills that we're going to be talking about. And we don't yet know how those lawsuits are going to play out and how courts are going to respond. But in brief, there's been a kind of moral panic around the teaching of so-called critical race theory in schools. Critical race theory, of course, is a is a legal theory developed in the legal academy uh, as a kind of structural critique of racism in society um, that looks at how racism is actually embedded in our institutions rather than an isolated occurrence that can be remedied through isolated responses. It's unlikely to me that that version of critical race theory is being taught in very many fifth or seventh or ninth grade classes, but it has become a kind of catch-all term for the anxieties that many conservatives you know, feel towards the discussions that have taken place around race, particularly, again, since the protests that followed the murder of George Floyd. And so we've seen now dozens, maybe it's even 100, if you include some of the bills relating to gender, bills and state legislatures that aim to restrict the way that conversations about race take place in classrooms. They refer to divisive concepts. These bills are really poorly drafted. And one of the biggest problems with these bills, and I think probably the strongest arm of our legal challenges to these bills, is just that no one really knows what's banned and what isn't banned. And so we're seeing school districts that say, you probably shouldn't use the term white privilege, that might be illegal. You probably shouldn't, you know, talk about structural racism, that might be illegal. You probably should take some of these books out of your curriculum, because we could get in trouble. And, and that trouble is real. There are penalties for the teachers themselves that include fines uh, and loss of employment. And so if you're a teacher in that situation, you're going to have to err on the side of caution, uh, because you don't want to end up being personally on the hook. It's chilling, and for a reason. 
It's absolutely chilling. So, so I think the first you know argument against a lot of these bills is that they're written by people who don't know what they're talking about, um, who don't really understand what's being taught in the schools right now, that use really vague and overbroad language. You know, the second is that there are First Amendment issues here. You know, as I said before, and I should emphasize this again, states have a great deal of control over what gets taught in K through 12. And there are not a ton of cases, but there are some where courts have stepped in and said that a state's rewriting of a curriculum violated the Constitution. But this might be one of those cases where there really is no reasonable pedagogical basis for the change that's being, uh, you know, put through. Um, And when courts see that this is really being driven by partisan interests rather than by sound educational theory, look, judges are human beings. And so they're going to look at the context in which um, a lot of these bills are being passed, uh, and they're going to see that that it's a bunch of, bunch of right-wing legislatures around the country that are passing cookie-cutter versions of these bills. Many of them are based on a Trump executive order that a court struck down. And so I think when courts look at what's motivating this, see expert testimony that there's really no pedagogical basis for these legislative changes, some of these laws may be vulnerable. I mentioned before, we, we've sued in a couple of states already, in Oklahoma, in New Hampshire, we're looking at lawsuits in other states. And so when some of those cases start getting revolved, you can either bring me back or, or talk to Emerson Sykes, our lawyer who has been leading that litigation. Deal. We'll do that. Definitely. So in the wake of both education and book bans, we've seen students take to their school districts and call for a change, uh, or, or at least try to resist what has been the chilling effect of teaching around these topics in their schools. Their argument is that they have a right to learn this information. So for this question, it's actually coming from an Instagram user. I want to get to it because I do think that it's all part and parcel of what we're talking about here. So this comes from Colleen Shelley Key. How does free speech pertain to children? Do underage people get the same protection? Well, so I think that this is an extremely important question. Usually when we talk about the free speech rights of children, we're talking about it in the context of schools. And so I think we should start there. And once again, I think it's important for us to just remind our listeners that the Constitution, the First Amendment constrains the government. It doesn't constrain private actors. So if you are a student in a private school, if you go to Catholic school, if you go to any other kind of private school, the things that I'm going to say right now don't apply to you. The school can set whatever rules it wants to set um, about what kind of speech community it wants to be. It can ban protest if that's what it wants to do. That's really between the school and your parents who are paying tuition um, to that school. And the government has very, very little to say about it, unless there's a state that has decided to legislate in that area in private schools. In public schools, in a, in a landmark case during the Vietnam War called Tinker versus Des Moines, the Supreme Court wrote the famous words, the First Amendment does not stop at the schoolhouse door. Students don't lose all of their constitutional rights or their First Amendment rights when they go to school. But they do lose some. <laughs> right now in, in Tinker v. Des Moines, the Mary Beth Tinker, who was a 13-year-old student, wore and her brother wore black armbands to protest the war in Vietnam. They were disciplined for that. And the Supreme Court says, you can't do that. 
they were expressing a political view. We want young people to learn to express political views. There was nothing disruptive in that protest. It was a silent protest. But the standard that evolved from the Tinker case is that schools can regulate student speech where that speech materially disrupts the learning environment so that you can, if you're a student, wear a black armband to protest the war in Vietnam, but you couldn't have the whole class simultaneously stand up uh, and start doing anti-war chants uh, during the class uh, or even part of the class to do that, because that that's something that that really would interfere with other people's ability to learn and with the school's ability to carry out its educational function. Most cases are a lot harder than that. And in this last Supreme Court term, we had a case that presents a new challenge, right? And so, so of course, the general rule, as I said, that schools can regulate student speech that disrupts education. But what happens now that we have students who are online, on social media, in each other's feeds, not just during the school day, but 24 hours a day, seven days a week, saying things that could be hurtful, could be potentially disruptive. Where does the school's authority end? And in this case, the Supreme Court had to consider whether a school was justified in punishing a student who off campus, not during school hours, responded to have to not having made the cheerleading team by going onto Snapchat and posting something that was, you know, slightly profane. Fuck cheer, fuck softball, fuck the school, fuck everything, right? Pretty typical adolescent frustration. And the school had suspended her from being able to participate in, uh, in sports. And an almost unanimous Supreme Court said that the school had gone too far. And what the court said was, look, three things. First of all, we give schools authority because during the school hours, they are acting as parents for the children. They're responsible for them. But not during school hours, they're not acting that way. Kids still have actual parents who we can expect to play the role of parents. Um, Second, if schools had authority that was really as unlimited to police speech, you know, 24-7, that means that students would constantly be living with diminished speech rights. There'd be no time. There'd be no break. There'd be no place for them to, you know, to act out, to be, you know, mildly offensive, to do things that that kids do without the school constantly looking over their shoulder. And, and, and the third factor is that we really need young people to be exposed to difficult, controversial ideas and concepts. We need to train them to be prepared um, to deal with that, even if they may be somewhat offensive. And so, so the court didn't dictate definitively whether schools can act you know, to discipline students for off-campus conduct. Uh, they did leave open that, of course, if there's you know severe bullying that takes place outside of school that affects another student's ability to learn, that can still be regulated. Um, if there's a threat directed at a teacher at a school from off campus, that could still be regulated. But in general, the court is telling schools, back off a little bit. Let kids be kids. Don't subject them to a surveillance regime that is going to assign punitive consequences to dumb things that they might do or say when they're not in school, so long as the school is more or less able to to fulfill its function of protecting kids and educating them. So the short answer is yes, kids absolutely have constitutional rights. They should exercise them in schools. And the, the line that they should try not to cross um, is really disrupting other students' ability to learn.
Yeah, I think that's really important. I mean, the idea of disrupting being the line is obviously always open for interpretation from the school. What is a disruption? Yeah, it is. And there are hard cases, right? So if a student goes to school wearing a t-shirt that has a Confederate flag, is that disruptive? Is it possibly disruptive in some contexts in a school that has a history of racial hostility? Is it different if, depending on the makeup of the school, depending on what's been going on in that school, um, it's certainly political speech of a kind. So there are going to be very, very difficult cases that schools have to confront in this context. And I should just add, you know, in our first episode, we talked about speech that's just not protected, right? So that would apply to threats, that would apply to harassment. Schools can prohibit bullying. Bullying uses words, but we're really saying it's conduct. It's a way, it's a form of harassment of another student. And so schools have a lot of leeway to regulate that kind of conduct. That's not even protected by the First Amendment. Yes, it's always good to go back to the categories of speech that are not protected. I want to play you this question from another caller, Elaine Sage. And this is about speakers on college campuses. Hi, my name is Elaine Sage. I'm from Evanston, Illinois. And my question is, um, I think I know the answer to this, is canceling controversial speakers on college campuses a free speech issue? Well, it's certainly a free speech issue. And sometimes it's a First Amendment issue. It's a First Amendment issue if it happens at a public college or university, but it's a free speech issue if it happens anywhere. Look, college students are adults. And the law regards them as adults, as it should. They may still be forming as adults. Um, They may still have a lot of development to do. I think I'm still forming as an adult, Ben. (laughs) We all try out different versions of adulting. But that really is one of the main things that we want. For many people, college is um, their first experience of living somewhat independently, being exposed to very challenging ideas new stimuli, new political ideas, and new causes of offense and hurt. So to be on a college campus today means generally to be exposed not just to ideas that are going to expand your mind, but often to words and speech that are going to cause you discomfort, even pain. Now, schools can restrict the same kinds of speech that don't have any protection in our society, right? So if there is speech that is threatening to a student, that's harassing a student, that is really targeted at students. And here you might think about a you know, racial slur posted to a student's door. That's not free speech. That really is harassment and threat. But if we're talking about a speaker who is invited to campus and follows the rules that the school has set up for all campus speakers, but is going to speak on a controversial issue that causes offense to to many or even most students. That is, on a public college and university, squarely protected by the First Amendment. And the right response, um, in our view, is counterspeech, to protest that speech in a way that does not prevent others from being able to hear the speech. And so this is really important. We've seen a lot of incidents on college campuses recently where um, students who go to protest a speaker actually make it impossible not just for that speaker to speak, but for any other students to hear the, that speaker's words. And, and that 
in our view and in the law's view, um, is not an appropriate way to express disagreement with that speaker. If if we had the law of the jungle um, for free speech, no speakers would be able to speak because um, uh, you know teams of students or others who object to it would always be able to go in um, and shout it down and prevent you from hearing the speaker that you want to hear as well. So I, I've seen wonderfully creative ways that students have protested in a way that is both powerful but also respectful of the community's right to hear diverse and even offensive viewpoints. A clarifying question here is actually something that a family friend came up to me at a party very heated about. And he said, Kendall, what do you think? What does the ACLU think about students at Yale protesting a speaker that was invited and then the campus rescinding that speaker's invitation? And I smiled at him (laughs) and tried my best to respond in a way that satisfied. But I was wondering if you could address that here. Yeah, we should, again, reiterate that Yale is not a public college or university. So Yale is not constrained by the First Amendment. So Yale can have whatever policies it wants to have for who can speak and who can't speak. But we have very strongly stated the view, and it is ACLU policy, that even private colleges and universities should respect free speech and academic freedom. And no, a university should not rescind an invitation on the basis of stated or expected opposition to it. This is what we call a heckler's veto. We're so worried about how people might respond to the speech that the the speech gets canceled. And, and, And just always in these free speech controversies, try to flip the hypothetical upside down. If the offensive speaker that you have in mind in this hypothetical is Milo Yiannopoulos, then flip it to Ibram Kendi. Um, Flip it to uh, someone whose speech you would want to hear, but that other students might contrive a reason for being offended um, about and, and, and say that it's discriminatory in some way, right? These rules need to be as neutral as possible for ideology because every liberal campus, there's going to be conservative campuses. And it's very possible uh, for us to find ways to to make our views known without preventing others from hearing speech. But to put a pin on that, it's not against the law for Yale to uninvite a speaker. Not at all, but it may very well be against Yale's own policies. Uh, and many other private institutions, University of Chicago, have put out strong free speech policies that are supposed to guide the decisions of their administrators. But no, the Constitution has nothing to say about who speaks at Yale. Thanks, Ben. I think that was really helpful. And I'll be sending this to my family friend. Ben, in general, just wanted to say a big thanks to you for fielding all of our free speech questions. We've covered a lot of ground here. Online speech, just 101 speech, student speech. And we just really appreciate you being so willing to answer everyone's questions. I've enjoyed doing it. I'm sure that some of the listeners are frustrated that the answers are not always concrete. Um, But I hope that hearing me repeat some of these complexities will give people a better foundation for approaching these questions for themselves going forward. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate you sending us your questions and sounding off on free speech. It's been a great journey to dig in and learn more about all of the different kinds of free speech issues that we face in today's society. We'll be sure to bring you more series like this in the future. For more content overall, 
please listen to At Liberty that comes out every Thursday on this channel. Until next time, stay strong, everyone. Thank you.